to this. You know what? And in the ring with Dan and Benny, hey, Brother Man, he's about the most cat. I just love him to death. I love you. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're the best. I'm telling you, brother, in the ring with Dan and Benny. Yeah. We love you. Thank Woo. you so much, Dan. Oh, yeah. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spashano, joined, as always, by the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. Benny, how you doing, buddy? Well, Dan, uh, thankfully, my Yankees won the uh, series over the Orioles this weekend, two games to one. So at least for now, which I'm sure will change, I do have Dan and Be- Benny uh, bragging rights. You do. Uh, I mean, I'm in mid half of it's Tampa, but the AL East, best record in baseball right now. Oh, so geez, always a tough yeah. division. Absolutely. You know. Benny, we don't. We do a lot of shows. Uh, you always talk about slashes, and you talk about how people that have multiple jobs and multi just contribute so much. And there is so much to talk about and contribute. Our next guest, or I should say, our current guest, uh, is somebody we've talked about wanting to, to interview for a long time. We've been really looking forward to this. Why don't you tell everybody who we got on the line with us? Absolutely. So once again, we have another guest whose intro could actually take up the entire show. Uh, This gentleman is a New York Times bestselling author, writing not not only about wrestling, but true crime as well as rock and roll. And in two books, two instances, true crime and rock and roll in the same book. So he's written for the WWE magazine, as well as the British Inside the Ropes publication. Dan, you know, both you and I have written for the uh, Pro Wrestling Stories website, but once again, I'm going to use one of my baseball references, and we are going to be chatting with the Babe Ruth, Sadaharu O, and Shohai Otani of Wrestling Journalism. And I am absolutely delighted to introduce Mr. Keith Elliott Greenberg. Keith, welcome to Dan and Benny in the Ring. Well, and that's quite, a, that, that's quite an honor that you just bestowed <laughs> on me. I hope I can live up to it. Sadaharu O, I mean, we're talking big time. That's right. Sadaharu O is a very interesting tale, if you want to get into that. You know, he wasn't offered uh, Japanese citizenship until I believe he broke the home run record because he was part Chinese, and I believe he declined the honor. Wow. Interesting. I think he hit 868, if my, my baseball memory serves me correctly. I, I don't remember the precise number, but I remember it was quite a sensation, even in the United States, where we generally ignore the rest of the world. Right. Absolutely. That's got to be a new record for us, Benny. We got two baseball references in less than five minutes. First five minutes. <laughs> got them out of the way. <laughs> well, always, Benny always likes to sneak one of those in. Uh, Keith, I thank you for your time with us. And. We want to start a same question. We really start with everybody uh, because it's uh, we love how unique the answers are. Everybody's kind of got their own story. Uh, No two answers really are ever like. So I'm going to start with how how did you become a fan of professional wrestling? I know you've mentioned before you became a fan. You were around three or four years old. Uh, You grew up in Bruno country. Um, And that would have been right around the time he became the WWF champion, his historic run there, selling out the garden and everything else he was doing. Right, he uh, became he became champ when I was when I was four. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, when did you become? How did you become a fan? Uh, when did you go to your first show? Uh, and you know, 
were you hooked at that moment or was wrestling something that kind of grew on you? It, it was always around. Uh, my grandparents were true believers. And so uh, wrestling was always on. And that, those were my paternal parents, uh, grandparents who were immigrants from the former Soviet Union and lived in Brighton Beach, Brooklyn, which is still a largely Russian speaking area. And then on my mother's side, my mother was an Antonina Rocca fan in the 50s. And uh, she had an autograph book from when she graduated high school. And when it said favorite athlete, it said Rocca. So, um, you know, wrestling was definitely, um, it was something that never wasn't there. So it wasn't like, how did you become a fan? It was almost like, well, if you have the radio on and your parents listen to Frank Sinatra and Tony Bennett and Dean Martin, that stuff's going to get into your brain. Um, in terms of my first show, I have a vague memory of being brought up to New Haven, Connecticut uh, in the mid-60s. And um, I believe the Sheik was on a show over there. And I remember my, my grandfather and an uncle who was a baker in New Haven, Connecticut at that point. Uh, I remember there, there being a lot of, uh, you know, discussion about the Sheik. And, you know, in my family, I guess the Sheik was considered the most heinous villain ever. And, you know, and it wasn't a joke. And, you know, later on, I remember talk about Killer Kowalski and Waldo Von Erich. None of this was said tongue-in-cheek. Like, in my family, when people spoke about wrestling villains, they thought these people were their actual characters. Uh, I can remember being older, maybe in my, um, you know, middle school age, and uh, Tony Gurria and Haste X Calhoun winning the titles from uh, Tanaka, Professor Toru Tanaka, and Mr. Fuji on TV. And as I recall, uh, Haystack Calhoun gave someone the big splash, and then uh, Tony Gurria stood on his back and raised his arms. I think that move was called the Statue of Liberty. And I remember saying to my grandfather, well, is that really fair? Like, one guy <laughs> pinned another guy, and the other guy is standing on his back. Like, that's not very sportsmanlike. And my grandfather paused and thought, and then he said, First of all, they had no business throwing salt. So I guess it was like two wrongs make a right. Wow. So, Keith, uh, I don't want to say we because I, I grew up in uh, I was born in Brooklyn, grew up in Long Island. Uh, we grew up in what was arguably the greatest era in wrestling in, in a part of the country, which, I, you know, again, maybe I'm a bit biased, was arguably to be the best to be as a fan. So when did you decide that writing was going to be your, your life's vocation? And was was your initial aspiration to to be a writer for the wrestling magazines? And the other the follow up question is. Were you a collector of the magazines? Well, I was definitely, not only was I a collector of the magazines, I still am. In fact, just spontaneously a few days ago. And so I'm in a living situation where I've been separated from ye for years, but I still own a house with my ex. And um, I go there quite a bit. I have a daughter who's 19 and still lives at home. And I was down, I was there and I went to the basement and just spontaneously, I opened the drawer where 
some of the uh, old wrestling magazines were and just reached in and pulled out a magazine from 1964. And I, there was an article about this uh, duo. They were not called the Gordos. Um, they were supposed to be from Galicia or something. It was a tag team I'd never heard of before. But as I recall, the stories were quite well written. And they were, um, they actually served as a pretty good template for the types of writing I did later on. They were very creative. And I think back in those days, you know, people didn't have as many vehicles to indulge their entertainment taste. And I think people would pour over a good, well-written story. And I think there were probably pulp novels at that time that were equally well-written. And so wrestling magazines, you know, I learned a lot of vocabulary through wrestling magazines. I didn't come from an educated background. I remember reading about Abdullah the Butcher and going to the encyclopedia and looking up the Sudan. So wrestling was a form of education for me. And in fact, when, and I've told this story before, uh, when we used to get wrestling from Los Angeles on the Spanish International Network, it was in Spanish. And I would watch wrestling in Spanish and then leave the TV on and watch the news in Spanish and watch variety shows in Spanish and watch commercials in Spanish. And by the time I was, you know, again, like middle school age, I remember picking up a newspaper. It was 1973, so I was 14, picking up a Spanish language newspaper in the candy store and starting to read it. And so, yeah, I, I don't speak perfect Spanish, but I've been uh, around, you know, I've been to Venezuela, I've been to Ecuador, I've been to Cuba, I've been to Spain, and I've been to Mexico and Guatemala. And I certainly can speak functional Spanish, and that's all because of the the, uh, the sport of kings. Keith, was that Channel 41, WXTV it from Patterson? Yes, it was Channel 41 was uh, wrestling from the Olympic Auditorium. And it was Jim, Jimmy Lennon was the announcer. Yes, he was, and he was a great announcer. And the Spanish announcers were uh, Miguel Alonso and Luis Magana. And then years later, when I was writing for uh, WWF magazines, uh, Miguel Alonso was working for them, doing Spanish-language broadcasts. Wow. And I would travel with him sometimes. You know, we would drive together, and I got to hear all the stories about these people I watched on TV. And in reality, this is only 15 years or so later, but there's a big difference between being, say, 11 and 12 and being 27 and right. 28. Wow. So it seemed like, you know, an eternity ago. And it, but it was, you know, a, a circle being closed. And it was, you know, quite wonderful to experience that. And I'm very grateful for it, just as I'm grateful to all the friends in the wrestling business I'm still making, you know, because I'm still fortunate to be writing about wrestling. I'm still writing books and I'm still writing for Inside the Ropes magazine. And as a result, I'm speaking to wrestlers all the time. And I'm also interacting with fans uh, more than in some ways more than ever before. And, you know, and I'm still forming friendships. And, you know, I'm, you know, uh, wrestling has really given me a lot. And I'm not saying that as a cliche. I truly feel that way. 
Well, it's actually, uh, I mean, it's a great story. Uh, and I think it's perfect transition. I was hoping you could expand a little bit your intro, <clears throat> excuse me, your initial uh, journalism. Uh, so what was your initial job in journalism? I know you mentioned you worked uh, for U.S. Weekly and that you were recruited to write for WWF Magazine. Uh, but I've, been, you, I've go ahead. been writing about wrestling before that. I, I, I Look, when I started out writing, I was 19 years old. So that was 1978. And I would write for anybody. I would write for porn magazines. I would write for uh, little weekly newspapers in Queens. I would write for music magazines, anybody who wanted to pay me, I would write for them. And um, around 81 or so, I started freelancing and writing about wrestling because I, you know, it was a, a topic I knew about. And for a brief period, I remember I was doing a, um, a column for the Staten Island Advance, a, a wrestling column, a monthly wrestling column. And I remember the person I would call to assist me was always Vince McMahon Sr. And he would set something up. He would set up an interview with the Grand Wizard, I recall. And, you know, it was like bizarre to suddenly have this kind of access to a world I'd watched from afar. But there's something beautiful about professional wrestling that even if you're not athletic enough to take a bump, if you love it, if you love it enough, somehow you can find a way in. And, you know, I was finding a way in and Vince McMahon Sr. of all people was, was paving the way, helping to pave the way for me. Well, That's amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, how did that, if you could expand a little bit on that, how did that come about? Like, you know, you, you go from the column to next. I mean, I don't, obviously not next thing, you know, but you're on the phone with with Vince Sr. trying to put interviews together. Was that kind of a natural transition or did you sort of get thrust into well, that I once you started working there? Story I, I, well, and actually, it's a story I've told also. Um, I remember I wanted to. OK, the first story I ever wrote about wrestling was about. David and Bruno Sammartino. And I wrote that for Us Weekly. And um, after that was published, this is before the Hulk Hogan era. This is the Bob Backlund era. So pro wrestling did not uh, receive a great deal of outside media attention. So suddenly I had a certain cachet very quickly in the wrestling business. And um, I recall that I wanted to do a story about the pro wrestling phenomenon. How is it that something with virtually no publicity, no outside respect, sells out Madison Square Garden every, every month? And, you know, I kind of always wanted to write for the New York Daily News, but thought that would be a long-term goal, that I wouldn't get there for a while, because that was the newspaper we read in my, in my household. And um, I called the New York Daily News, and then I'm in the office talking to the sports editor. He goes, yeah, sure, we'll do it as a Sunday centerfold, you know, the Sunday sports center spread, and you'll write the story. And then I'm at Madison Square Garden, like, interviewing Bob Backlund. And, you know, at that point, 
the McMahon family, I guess they're introduced to me at that point. And, you know, then the Sporting News had a, had a little magazine for kids called Sports Now, and I interviewed Bob Backlund for them. And I, then I'm in. Like, I'm not 100% in. I'm still an outsider. I'm not one of the boys by any means, but I'm not a stranger to the industry anymore. I'm a familiar face. And I'm not, there's some trepidation because everything is kayfabe back then, but they're not, they, they know I'm not out to screw them because the stories I'd written, I wasn't exposing the business. I was in my own youthful way honoring the business. Keith, um, you're definitely not a, a one-trick pony. You've written many excellent non-wrestling books. One that I'm particularly particularly eager, eager to read is um, December 8th, 1980, the day John Lennon died. And I was actually fortunate enough. I got to see him uh, uh, with Elton John at uh, Madison Square Garden. It's Thanksgiving Day, 1974. And he I was remember. actually surprised. I, yeah. I think I it was Mar- yeah. I'm sorry. I was not there. But I remember there was some discussion, I was 15, about going to that concert, and somehow I didn't go. And the next day I'm in Baskin-Robbins, and somebody comes in and they go, John Lennon came out. Total surprise. It was Murray the K, I guess, who's the uh, the DJ. And he said, we have a surprise guest. And I'm thinking, well, who the heck could it be? When he said John Lennon, I swear... I thought the roof was going to come off Madison Square Garden. That was the reaction that, 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 you know, that, that came out. And it was just, just amazing. But, you know, that day, December 8th, 1980, that's one of those days, at least in my opinion, is I have three of them. That day, and then you have November 22nd, 1963 with JFK, and then, of course, September 11, 2001, where you have a very vivid recollection of what you were doing. And how you felt at that precise moment in time. In my case, I was sitting on my couch in Patchogue, Long Island, and I'd been married a little bit less than two months watching Monday Night Football, hearing, and then I hear Howard Cosell announce the death of John Lennon. And I just, I was in total shock. I mean, how could that be? So I was going to ask you, um, where were you when it happened, and what compelled you to write about it? Well, um, and this is very interesting because when I did write about it, and you'll read it when you read the book, um, but there was a, wrestling was in Madison Square Garden that night. And I actually interview Rick Martell, who talks about, I think he was in the ring pretty close to when John Lennon was shot. But I, I believe John Lennon was shot slightly after 11. So the show might have ended by then. But... Um, he talks about then going to the bar and the baby faces and the heels are actually mumbling to each other about it. They're kind of breaking kayfabe a little bit because everyone is stunned by the death of John Lennon and trying to piece together what occurred. So, you know, I guess I have a knack for weaving wrestling into everything. Um, on that day, I remember I was at a friend's apartment. And we were going to uh, go out. We were going to go out like, you know, midnight or so. And what we tended to do was we would watch the news before we went out. And, um, and we turned the news on. 
And we were like engrossed in a conversation about something else. And then it was announced that John Lennon was shot and we, you know, turned to the TV and it was kind of dreamlike from there. Now, interestingly, I spoke, you know, when I wrote the book and afterwards, I spoke to so many people who, you know, experienced what you, what you experienced. And even when I was being interviewed for the book, you know, DJs were telling me what they experienced that day. And a friend of mine, his wife said that she had an exam. I think she went to the Mary Lewis School, which was an exclusive girls Catholic school in Queens. She had an exam the next day and she's listening to WNEWFM radio. She hears the announcement. And at that moment, she knows she's going to the Dakota the next day. Now, there's no conversations with friends. She just knows in her heart that's where she's going to go. And she and tens of thousands of other people had that precise instant, the moment they heard that John Lennon was dead, to be in front of his home. And I interviewed one of the first police officers on the scene. And I think the NYPD said, I will send two police cars down there. You know, maybe a couple of hardcore fans will want to gather in front of John Lennon's house, not realizing what thousands of people all around the New York metropolitan area were feeling and that, you know, untold numbers would just converge there with no internet. They would just go there. Yeah, I think it's, it's, that's one of those stories that, and Benny, we've talked a lot about how modern media has kind of changed things. It, it, the narrative of how many people, as far as what total percentage, found or heard the news of John Lennon's assassination from Monday Night Football kind of puts in perspective how big of a show that was and how quickly, for what it is, like you said, in the pre-social media days, how quickly news could spread around certain areas. But it also shows how slowly news spread, because now if John Lennon was shot, we'd all get an alert on our phone. People were watching football. They were not turning to the news. They were not monitoring other news. You watched one thing at a time. You couldn't watch two things at a time. And unless, you, you know, you didn't have two TVs in your home, you had one television in your home. And so. In order to break that news, Howard Cosell, who for the younger folks listening was, you know, a classic sports announcer of that era, he had to inform the, all those fans that John Lennon had been shot, who, all those football fans. And that's how millions of people, literally millions of people learned about it. Yeah, the uh, famous... Not just his announcement, but the the exchange you can hear among the announcers about debating whether or not they should tell anybody. It's it's one of those moments in sports that goes past it. Nineteen eighty had several of them, but that's that was crazy. Moving, um, kind of expanding a bit on interviews in preparation for the podcast. Benny and I were talking, and we we really 
kind of wanted to do some research. We listened to your interview with Lanny Poffo on the Genius Cast uh, with good friend of the show, J.P. Zarka. Uh, I mean, the love, respect. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I, I know J.P. He's a great guy. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's the uh, I mean, we've said it before. He He's one of the unofficial. What, what would you say, Benny, the uh, the. Like like well, how uh, uh, the, they, they used to say the fifth Beatle. I, I call him my ambassador, Kwan. So that's... <laughs> there you go. But um, <clears throat> I mean, the the like like I said, the respect, the mutual respect you two had for each other was really heartwarming. Obviously, uh, unfortunately, going from John Lennon to Lanny Poffo, another uh, loss we had this year. Um, with all the writing and research and everything you've done, is there any possibility? Uh, We'll see Keith Elliott Greenberg as the name on this on a book about Lanny. Um, well, sadly, I don't think so. Now, I'll disclose something. Um, I had been um, discussing when Randy was even alive, uh, doing a Randy book, and I was, you know, talking, communicating through Lanny. And Randy didn't want to do it. Randy had pretty much removed himself. And then Lanny and I had discussed doing a book about, from Lanny's perspective, about Randy and the Poffo family. And um, then Lanny died, but but it never came it never came to pass. And then Lanny died, which hit me pretty hard because we were supposed to meet that week, and um, you know we had been communicating. I sent him a text. He. He texted me when he arrived in New York and I was at the Royal Rumble in San Antonio where I was already in San Antonio for the Royal Rumble. And he said he'd be in New York for a while. And I said I'd get back to him when I arrived back in town. So there's a pro wrestling bar in Brooklyn called DDT. And on that Wednesday night, I texted Lanny to see if he wanted to watch AEW with me over there. And I didn't hear back from him, but that wasn't uncommon. And then when I woke up the next morning, um, the Iron Sheik's nephews, the Megan twins, texted me and said that Lanny had died during the night. And, um, you know, I was in disbelief. And one of them wrote, do you think this is a work? And I wish it was a work. So I wrote a story for Inside the Ropes magazine, which is out now in the UK, but it it takes a few weeks for um, those magazines to get to the US. And I said, okay, maybe it's time now to do, you know, the story of Randy Savage and the Poffo family of wrestling, because I felt sad that, you know, Lanny was the last caretaker of that legacy. you know, Lanny has a daughter, but she's not a wrestling person. She was raised by her mother outside the wrestling business. And while there's great love that she had for her father and her uncle and her grandparents, you know, wrestling's not her thing. She's a normal, fully functional human being who actually exists, who would be fine if wrestling never existed. And, um, I'm like, maybe the story just needs to be told. And then I learned that there's, there is a, um, a, a macho man book in the works and 
Lanny was even interviewed for that book. So um, I'm going to do another project, which I can't disclose yet because the contracts aren't signed, but there are discussions going on and about another wrestling project. Gotcha. Keith, I wanted to chat with you about your thoughts on professional wrestling and how much it's changed since we both became fans in the 60s. So my first show was April of 1968. Um, I was two months shy of my 13th birthday. It was at the uh, Island Garden in uh, West Hempstead. And the uh, the main event was Bruno against Toro Tanaka. And I, I vividly remember how excited I was. But I was also terrified to a certain extent that, like, am I going to see this evil man, Professor Tanaka, you know, defeat my hero and, and walk out as the new champion? And I remember having – and it's funny when, you know, when I was in junior high school, there was only – there was a specific set of friends that I had that you could chat wrestling about. Most of them thought it was, you know, they, they, they wouldn't even talk to you about it, but there was that, 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 you know, click of people that, that you could chat wrestling about. And I, I just remember like, you know, we, we would chat about whatever happened at the garden, um, that weekend. And so uh, contrast that to, uh, WrestleMania. And I must've read at least a hundred posts, uh, about the, you know, people criticizing the booking, uh, decision to not have Cody Rhodes win the title from Roman Reigns. So it just, it seems like we've gone from fans who like felt with our hearts to, uh, to wrestling analysts. So I wanted to get your perspective on that. Yeah, I mean, look, I couldn't, can't say anything better than you. And I don't want to live in the past. I want to embrace the present, but yes, you're a hundred percent right. And everyone thinks they are wrestling analysts and we're not, we're not bookers. I've never booked a wrestling show. I don't think I, I in fact, I, I will say definitively, I could not book a wrestling show. My fandom doesn't translate into those talents. So it's very easy to second guess. I couldn't come up with a long-term storyline, but it is very different. Like I remember, like you said, you were scared to see Professor Toru Tanaka in the flesh. And, you know, I can remember the, I was writing about wrestling already and I was at the Ramada Inn in Midtown Manhattan and I was talking to Don Morocco and I'm in my early 20s and Mr. Fuji comes by and he goes, oh, excuse me, Morocco goes, I'm going to go with my friend now. And I felt like going, but Mr. Fuji throws salt. How can you go with Mr. Fuji? <laughs> He's evil. Later, I actually learned how evil he actually was. He was a river. Yeah, he was <laughs> a terrible river. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's a different world. And I recall when I wrote for the WWE magazine, uh, around 2003, going to South Africa to a series of shows there. And the fans in South Africa were different than the fans in the United States. So you would get everybody who would be essentially like a Swazi guy who worked as a security guard who had grown up in the bush to a Jewish doctor from Johannesburg saying to you, I have a question for you. Are they really fighting? Because they'd been so in the dark about it and realized 2003, the internet, I remember like trying to communicate with people via email and it was still like dialing. You had to 
dial in, you know, a, a signal and sometimes you wouldn't get one. So it wasn't like now where everything is out in the open yet. It was getting there, but it wasn't there yet. And so there was still a naivete, which have, after having been around cynical American wrestling fans for years, I found quite, quite refreshing. But it's gone away. It can, we can never go back to that anymore. And I wish people weren't so uh, eager to play Monday morning quarterback. Uh, but they are. And that's the world in which we live. Right. Just like, and, you know, Kenny McIntosh, who's the founder of the Inside the Ropes franchise and the Inside the Ropes magazine, and I discussed this. You know, if I go to a WWE press conference, when I'm asking questions, I'm still writing a 4,500-word article, just like I did even longer than the articles I wrote for WWE's magazines. I'm writing a long article, and the questions I'm asking is to elicit answers that will fit in either as transitions or to answer questions that I that you know, will be relevant a month from now when this article comes out. Not this afternoon, not in an hour, not tomorrow. And a lot of the people there are internet writers and they are put, or internet reporters, and they're putting up clips of the wrestlers to go up on the web and go up on Twitter and be instantly digested. And it's a different skill set I'm not going to say it's not journalism. It's a different form of journalism, but it's just as valid in this day and age because I go to all those websites and I watch all those clips on Twitter. So, you know, those folks would not exist without me and millions of other fans like me. What I do is just slightly different. Well, I'm curious, uh, a little bit of a follow-up on that. What do you think about the trend, and I say recent, maybe last five years or so, it's become more prevalent, of someone like a, a Dave Meltzer where it seems like wrestlers and, and some promotions are intentionally booking or, or arranging matches specifically to target Meltzer. like, you know, they're we... It, they're doing it for Meltzer's benefit. And look, he's achieved a legend no one in his position ever achieved. And there will never be another Dave Meltzer. I mean, Brian Solomon, my good friend who wrote the book on the original Sheik, said not only has Dave Meltzer written more words than any other wrestling writer, he has written more words than any other writer. Like if you read that Wrestling Observer news, newsletter, I still get it in the mail. That's like nine-point type. And he went wow. <laughs> exhaustively on there. So, but yes, Meltzer has now become an institution to the point that wrestlers, or not just fringe wrestlers who like meet Meltzer after a show, wrestlers everywhere want that endorsement from Meltzer. And it's, it's truly bizarre. It's, you know, it's a crazy business. And that's one of the craziest parts of the business. And I don't know Meltzer that well, but I am sure this is a scenario a young Dave Meltzer never could have even fathomed. 
fair. T speak going uh, off on wrestling books. Uh, one of the most famous, uh, excuse me, one of the most fabulous, I should say. Uh, and and I, I personally enjoyed it. And Benny was the one who introduced me to it, uh, that you've written was superstar Billy Graham tangled ropes. Um, Evan Ginsberg's been a guest on our show several times. He told us a story about his dad, uh, who was a New York City cab driver. Uh, Mr. Ginsberg, being his father, commented he'd only observed three celebrities that could stop traffic by their mere presence. He said it was Muhammad Ali, Julie Newmar, and the third was superstar Billy Graham. And one of, the, uh, <laughs> one of the episodes uh, was a debate. Evan and our, our good friend Nikita Brezhnikov had as to it was a, it was a hypothetical debate as to whether Vince Senior should have turned uh, Billy Graham babyface and continued his title reign like like was it the right jo- uh, call to take the title off I of mean, him? It, it, look, I, if you read that book, I asked that question to Vincent Kennedy McMahon, and he would say, "No, my father was wrong." He said, "If I had been in charge, he would have been my Hulk Hogan," and that comes from Vincent Kennedy McMahon's lips. Superstar Billy Graham, you know, towards the end of his reign, he was so desperate for the fans to turn him, he started wearing white. So even though he was a heel, he'd be cheered. But Vince McMahon Sr. had laid it out for him. He said, you are winning the title on this date, and you are losing it on this date. And, you know, it was an agreement. And Vince McMahon Sr. did not budge on that. And as you know, the uh, superstar Billy Graham fell into a deep depression after this. Well, then uh, maybe expand, if you, if you wouldn't mind expanding on that a little bit. I mean, obviously, uh, I, you agree that they should have kept the belt on him. And was that was that something... Maybe expand a little bit on how superstar Billy Graham felt about that, other than you said he was he fell into a deep depression. Well, look, that's what superstar Billy Graham wanted. You know, I, look, I, I again, I'm not a wrestling promoter, just like I'm not a booker. You know, they were still selling at Madison Square Garden with Backlund as champion. Was he correct to go with Backlund as a babyface champion? I don't know, uh, but. The fans in New York City were definitely into superstar Billy Graham. There's no question about it. They would have embraced him as a babyface. Now, who would have been his challengers? Would they have, uh, you know, gotten into the whole idea of, uh, you know, some who would be challenging superstar? Well, he did have challengers. As a babyface, I guess he could have gone through a range of heels, just like he went through a range of baby faces. Absolutely. Would they gotten into it as much as they got into, you know, the monster heel threatening Bob Backlund? It would have been a brand new formula. Maybe the senior McMahon might not have been able to put together matches like that. The younger ones certainly could have. Keith, one of my my favorite reading genres is true crime. And uh, my mom, I I very, very vividly remember her bookshelf right next to her Lazy Boy. And it was filled with just, you know, countless paperbacks um, filled with true, uh, you know, true crime novels. And she told me many times that I absolutely had to read In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. And every time we chatted on the phone, because at the time I lived in Missouri, Kansas City, 
she'd say, have you read it yet? Have you read it yet? And finally I bought the book and I read it and it's like, Oh my God. Like I, I wish I hadn't waited so long, but no, it was one of them. That's like, I've read it. I've read it at, at, at least three times, possibly four times. And I was fortunate to read it when I was young, but it's like one of these books that every 12 years or so, I just feel this compulsion to read it again. And I feel the same way about the Executioner's Song by Norman Mailer. And another book I've read, I've, I've read probably about four times is the autobiography of Malcolm X. And I always seem to get something new from the book, these books each time I reread them. Is that one of the reasons why you, you uh, got into writing about true crime? I always loved true crime. I loved wrestling and I loved true crime. It's like how Paul Bearer loved the wrestling business and the funeral business. I mean, I can remember when Richard Speck killed all those nurses in Chicago. And I think it was 66. I was seven years old. Like asking my grandmother to read me the article from the New York Daily News with her Yiddish accent because I just, you know, couldn't digest the information fast enough and I couldn't. I couldn't read every word. Wow. Yeah, I actually, I, I vaguely remember my mom doing the same with uh, Albert DeSalvo, the Boston Strangler. And oh, yes. I guess there's still controversy of whether or not he truly did, uh, did any yes, of those murders. And you know what's interesting is someone who still works in true crime and works in true crime documentaries, if you and I produced an Albert DeSalvo documentary uh, now and put it up on Netflix. I guarantee you, it absolutely, unequivocally, people would watch us. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Including very young people who've never heard of the Boston Strangler. I mean, several prominent documentaries and docu-series about true crime over the last few years have uh, had a legit, had a, a measurable impact on the legal system with petitions and things like that as people find out more. And then, you know, un unfortunately the, uh, for, for me anyway, my, my wife is an avid list watcher and, and consumer of all the, the, the murder podcasts and, and the murder shows and everything. So Benny, I want it on record. If, if, uh, if I disappear in the next few years and it matches any documentary that had come out, uh, I want, the Dan and Benny money to be used to investigate that. Okay. Just make sure. So I just write my little notebook here, episode number 120, that you've gone on record. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's very funny. When I was um, when, when, I, when I, I was promoting my last book, there was this one fan who of, of the book, but but uh, she, uh, she took a, a train like two hours to meet me and, you know, made a big production out of finally meeting me. And Kenny McIntosh, you know, who created the Inside the Ropes uh, uh, Empire, he said, she came two hours by train just to meet you for 10 minutes. If you ever disappear, her name is the first name I'm giving to the police. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> 
you know, speaking of writing, uh, Benny, both Benny and I have written for the Pro Wrestling Stories website uh, throughout the couple years we've been doing this. We've had many writers, editors, publishers as our guests. Um, one question I don't think we've really ever asked or gotten into is the discipline required to write a 300-page book. I mean, obviously, every writer is different. Every story is different. But someone as yourself is an extremely prolific writer. Uh, I'm really particularly interested in your approach to a 300, 400-page book versus just writing an article. Well, the approach isn't that different, um, except it's more exhaustive and it takes longer. Um, I try to put together a really good outline and a very detailed outline. And if I write a 300-page book, sometimes I'll have an outline that will be 80 pages or so. And I really try to agonize over where the information is going because that enables me to weave the information together. And I'll think about that because, well, all of this seems like it fits together, but now it seems very repetitious here. What if I allude to this story again later and tell the second piece of the story? Then the read will be smoother. And that, I find, is the longest, most arduous process. Once I start the writing, that, then it's a little bit, not exactly, I don't want to simplify it, but it feels a little bit like paint by number because I know where everything is going. Then it's just, it's just crafting. Well, we talked, uh, we talked earlier about the evolution of professional wrestling over the years. Uh, Benny had a really good question on that. And we've, I mean, in the years we've been doing the show, we interviewed Dominic DiNucci, who's actually our first guest. We've talked with Ivan Putsky, uh, Jimmy Valiant, Bill Dundee. And most recently, as we were talking about before we started recording, Ken Patera, uh, they've all shared countless stories about wrestling uh, during the territory days. The one common denominator was the camaraderie between the boys as many of them traveled together for hours, uh, you know, telling stories of the multiple guys stuffed in rental cars, uh, sharing a hotel room to save on expenses. Uh, Davey O'Hannon, who's been on the show several times, uh, has frequently commented he spent more time with, with Mike Cicluna and Dominic Danucci than he did with his own family. I mean, the sure. stories we've gotten from the Tales of the Road, they're, they're really legends themselves uh, that – and they lend themselves to, to really – a wonderful book. Uh, of course, um, I mean, everything changes dramatically. So I'm curious <laughs> with, with the rise, we, as you mentioned with social media, um, people like, uh, like, a, a would anybody be interested in reading a, a book on say someone like a Ryback, you know, maybe the meat hook chronicles 20 years from now, or is, is, is the current wrestling crop just not interesting enough to warrant the attention I, that are, I mean, I'm sure there's some very interesting... Look, John Moxley wrote an immensely successful book two years ago. And, you know, it, it's all about his personal experiences, all about his inner torment, all about, you know, um, his views of the business. And it was, you know, it was compelling. I mean, you know, after the second night of WrestleMania, I was... At the hotel where the wrestlers were staying, the WWE wrestlers were staying, and I saw some Impact wrestlers were there. I saw some AEW guys were there, 
And, um, you know, I saw, you know, like at one point I walked by a table and all the guys from Imperium were hanging out with a bunch of friends. And uh, I thought, yeah, these people are telling stories. They just have different stories, but they're just as good. And I'm sure a guy like Gunther or the former Walter could tell some great stories like working all these circuits around Europe and then, you know, cracking uh, the, the United States. And all those guys, you know, I'm sure the stories of coming up in the performance center and getting it wrong and then finally getting it right. And, you know, Shawn Michaels, not as the wild child who we knew back in the 80s and 90s, but Shawn Michaels as the, uh, the generous sage who's the coach, who imparts his wisdom. Those are all great stories. You know, what's it like for, you know, what, what was it like for a Becky Lynch to come to the United States and start wrestling and, you know, wor work in the performance center and fall in love with Seth Rollins and raise a child? Those are good stories. And they're still unfolding. Keith, I, I just got done reading um, Listen, You you Pencil Neck Geeks, which, of course, is the autobiography of classy Freddie Blassie. And one of the big takeaways I got from reading the book was that in a lot of respects, uh, he was truly an extension of his in-ring character. At least I feel that way. But there's a lot of moments when he shows love and sometimes uh, when he even exhibits remorse and regret. And but yet you somehow transform Fred Blassie from a, a guy that I watched when I was a kid. Uh, grew up watching on TV, filing his teeth before uh, wrestling John Tolos at the Olympic to a very real person. Is that what you intended to do in a, um, your other books about Superstar and, and Ric Flair? Will I get more of the same? Uh, yeah, I would, I would say that's always the intention. And look, I was very fortunate. Freddie Blassie was 85 by the time the book was completed. His health was, was failing. He, I think everyone was aware that he wasn't going to be around much longer. And this was his last chance to tell these stories. And he kept notebooks uh, through the years with beautiful handwriting of uh, his wrestling experiences. And, you know, he said the nuns like used to beat, beat his brains out till he had perfect handwriting and they succeeded. And so I had those as an aide. And even though at times he'd be forgetful or he would um, repeat himself, uh, there was that framework to come back to. And sometimes he wouldn't remember a story or be stubborn about telling it. And then I would just make a note to circle back the next time. But um, when I was at his wake, one of his cousins came up to me. And she said the shame was the timing because one of his sons who hadn't spoken to him for decades was uh, ready to make peace with Freddie based on what he, uh, based on the regret he expressed about his failures as a father in the book. And then Freddie died three weeks after wow. uh, the book came out. And he and his son never had the opportunity to have wow. that conversation. That's <clears throat> that's sad, but I think that also kind of shows the the impact that humanizing people can have. Yes, and I, I really 
that's a really nice compliment, and I, I, I thank you for telling me this. Oh, absolutely. Well, let me let me have, ask you a, a quick follow up of before we wrap up. Uh, I mean, you had Billy Graham. We mentioned I told the story where he he could stop traffic. Obviously, Ric Flair spent decades being a larger than life, you know, got God among men. And then Freddie Blassie, the, the reputation he had. Did you find difficulty or uh, any any of, of those men more than the other in in telling the human side of the story because their legend was so great or did it just all fall into places as easily as I it mean, seemed to with know, there were different dynamics there were different dynamics with each person um you know uh blasty was at the end of his life he had nothing but time uh you know graham was retired so um you know he had time and graham i would come over his hat i would fly into phoenix and I wouldn't stay in his home. I would stay at a hotel nearby. But we would spend all day together. Like, Blassie would get tired. And Flair was still wrestling. So Flair was busy. So Flair didn't have that much time for me like the other guys did. Um, but Graham and I, I remember, you know, again, this isn't the first time I told this story. But Graham and I went out for Mexican food. And... We had this very attractive waitress that we were both trying to charm. And he goes, I'm the former WWE World Heavyweight. <laughs> and this here is my co-author. He's writing my autobiography. And she's looking at us like, you two idiots. Do you ever think for a moment I would believe an absolute lie like that? She looked at us like we were the two biggest drivers on planet earth but that was fun he and i laughed about that that was you know those were real bonding experiences now i also want to add and this is actually relevant um i wrote a book with the iron sheik that was never published uh, my theory is that uh there were you know it was a bit too unsavory for WWE to endorse this. That said, and he and I got very close when we worked together. And I uh, witnessed some really bad times he went through and the positive aftermath. Um, but uh, there's an A&E biography on the Iron Sheik on Sunday, and I'm in it. So uh, some of those wow. stories will be there. Well, I mean, it, it's crazy how fast the hour flies. Um, I, Benny, it seems like every week we talk about how we barely scratch the surface of what we want to talk about or what we could talk about. Um, so, I, I mean, I appreciate, Keith, I appreciate your time being with us. Um, as we wrap up, I guess, um, first, the the uh, Benny, do you have any, any final thoughts, any final questions? Yeah, I have to know, Keith, are you a Yankee or a Mets fan? Um, I have a Mets tattoo on my left forearm. So that's really, yes. wow. Exactly I would have picked you for a Yankee fan. I'm not sure why. Well, I was born in the Bronx, but raised in Queens, very close to Shea Stadium. So, uh, okay. you know, and, and I was, I was 10 when the Mets won the world series. Uh, but I was a Mets fan, you know, my father 
even though he w- was raised part of his childhood in Allentown, Pennsylvania, he then went to high school in Brooklyn and was a Brooklyn Dodger fan. So, okay. you know, my mother's father was a, was a Yankee fan because he lived, because he lived in the Bronx. But I guess, you know, when there's an intermarriage like that, you take your, you know, when, when they say you take your, uh, your, 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 your mother's religion and your father's baseball team or something. <laughs> I got, okay. You, you, you mentioned it. I'm, I got to know, uh, I lived in Maryland. I saw the effect the Colts leaving in the middle of the night had, um, you said your father was a Dodgers fan. Was, how were they impacted when they left Brooklyn? How did that oh, affect the neighborhood? And my father wasn't even a Brooklyn native. He had this, uh, you know, uh, he really had a great deal of animosity uh, towards the O'Malley family for moving the uh, Dodgers out of Brooklyn. And I recall, I think it was 1978, um, one of the O'Malley's, the Yankees were playing the Dodgers in the World Series, and one of the O'Malley's hotel rooms was broken into in Brooklyn. And my father felt that the hand of God involved in that theft. Perhaps, you know, God sent one of his angels into the O'Malley's hotel room to steal. <laughs> so he did not become a Los Angeles Dodgers fan, I presume. No, he did not. Interestingly, okay. people whose fathers were Giants fans, some of them became uh, San Francisco Giants fans. I guess there was not the same sense of betrayal, you know. The, the the Giants played in, you know, in Manhattan. They played, you know, uh, in Washington Heights. And Brooklyn, you had a bunch of events come one after the other. You had the Brooklyn Eagle newspaper shut down. You had the Dodgers leave. You had the Brooklyn trolley shut down, all within a span of a few years. And I guess Brooklyn just felt so betrayed by each one of those um, those actions. But none more so than the Dodgers abandoning Brooklyn. It's nice to see that they got some sports back, though. They have the basketball team. I guess, don't the Islanders play like half their games there? Brooklyn Cyclones games, and they were a blast. Right. (laughs) Well, again, Keith, thank you. Uh, so much for your time. I, I, this has been great. I mean, Benny and I, like I said, we've been talking about wanting to do this for a while and we were really looking forward to it, but uh, I'll give you obviously the last word. Uh, can you kind of tell our listeners about any, any current projects, uh, anything to expect you got coming up? I know um, you're writing for inside the ropes magazine and, and producing any, any, any projects they should keep an eye out for. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, uh, since this will air this week, uh, you can watch me on the A&E biography on the Iron Sheik on Sunday. Um, my most recent book came out in October. That's Follow the Buzzards, Pro Wrestling in the Age of COVID-19. Uh, a book I wrote in 2020 is called uh, Too Sweet, Inside the Indie Wrestling Revolution. Uh, both books are basically companion books. So I'd recommend reading those. And then, um, you know, I do have a project that I'm kicking around that I can't disclose, but uh, I will certainly be publicizing it when the time is right. Well, for those that want to keep an eye on that, how can our listeners find you uh, as well as your projects? Where are you, social media and whatnot? I am on all social media. 
Um, you know, my my allotment of Facebook friends is close to uh, running out. I think you can't have any more than 5,000 friends. But, right. you know, I'm on Twitter as well. And uh, it'd be nice to, you know, get some tweets from people who are not just, like, criticizing me from time to time. And, <laughs> um, and Instagram, I was hacked a few months ago. So I'm still building up my following there. So follow me on Instagram, too. You can find me in all those places. Okay, well... Uh, Benny, before we let Keith go, any final thoughts? I know you you were trying to get some baseball out of him, but final thought to you, Benny. Well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, even though he's a Mets fan, well, actually, um, I should I should qualify this because I am both a Yankee and Mets fan, which is very unusual. And I grew up as a Yankee fan, but uh, my dad was a service manager for uh, Ideal Chevrolet in Farmingdale, Long Island, which you know where I grew up, and one of his customers, and I think I've told this. Uh, story on the show before one of his customers was the pr director for the mets so we could get press box passes whenever we wanted and i i took full advantage of that i mean to me it was still a major league baseball game i remember one time the uh the mets and the astros played back-to-back twinight double headers i think it was on a friday and a saturday night so we we went to all four games i i just couldn't get enough of it so and i was at the uh shade I'm sorry. I mean, I, I love going to Yankee Stadium. The same thing. You know, baseball is baseball. I love a good baseball game. Right. And, you know, I've, I, you know, and you get to see great players. Look, even in the year 2000, when um, the Mets had that very frustrating World Series uh, loss to, uh, to the Yankees, I mean, Mariano Rivera was pitching. And I thought, I'm grateful to be alive and witness a marvel like this pitching, you know, sure and it was. Yeah. You no, know, I mean, and there were players like Paul O'Neill and Tino Martinez on that team. You know, it's a privilege to see people of that caliber of talent playing regularly in the city where you live. My, my very first major league game was in August of 1964 and it was the Mets and the Giants. And it was, I think there was five hall of famers on the Giants. It was Mays, McCovey, Cepeda, Marischal, and then the last one was Duke Snyder, who actually played his last year with the Giants. And then the only yeah, but uh, Snyder also played for the Mets. He did, yes, he did. And yeah, no, uh, sadly, nobody from the Mets. The only Hall of Famer that was on the Mets roster was uh, Casey Stangle, who was the manager at that time. At that time, yeah. Yeah, that was, we're talking '64. They weren't very good. Played for the Mets, uh, right? Didn't Warren Spahn play for the Mets as well? He, I believe, in 1965. Yes. Yeah, you know, and, uh, well, obviously, Gil Hodges played for the Mets before becoming a manager. Uh, yeah, and, of course, Willie Mays did. And, you know, as a result, we got to have, a, a you know, Willie Mays' last feel-good moment in 73. And, and even Yogi, his last major league at-bats were with the yeah. New York Mets in 1965. Yeah, yeah. And we could get into how baseball's changed, too, just like wrestling oh, yeah. changed. But that's, that's a conversation for another. That's a three-hour show. <laughs> it's yeah. all it's all about talent. I know. Uh, I obviously Benny was talking some some smack to me. Uh, I was an Orioles fan. I remember going to Memorial Stadium and watching the the one of the first games I ever went to was uh, the pitcher for the opposing team was a young Randy Johnson, and then I saw him again at Camden Yards a couple years later when he was with the Mariners and. 
I'm thinking, I remember even as a kid, I was like, wow, this guy's got something. And that was because people forget in the, in the late eighties, early nineties, he was a walk machine. He really didn't take off as a, as the dominant pitcher he was until in, what, 90, 93, somewhere in there. And so I remember thinking, I was like, wow, this this just huge, lanky guy that's throwing a lot of water. And then he came to Camden Yards a few years later, and I think it was 15 strikeouts, and they beat the Orioles by 10 or 12 runs. It was it's to think, but look back on it now and think of how, I mean, uh, uh, hit Ripken and how many people came in and out of those games I went to that were Hall of Famers and some of the best of their generation. Uh, you know, so it's, yeah. it's, it's always great to watch the talent. Yeah. But Keith, I, I appreciate again. I can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, Keith Elliott Greenberg, any anywhere books are sold, you've got to look up some of the stuff that he wrote for our listeners out there. Uh, we've talked a lot about the books, a lot about the the uh, stories, and there's just so much good stuff. And like you said, this weekend you'll be uh, on the A and E biography of the Iron Sheik, so that should be fun. So again, Keith, thank you so much for your time. Benny will get back thank to you, you after much, we're. Hey, uh, go ahead, guys. It took me. It, it, we scheduled this interview a while ago and i just want to say on the record it was well worth the wait this has been a great time for me absolutely totally for, agree for us too and we'll definitely have to schedule you to come back because there's so much more we can talk about and and we will it will be further along in the baseball season so we'll get some more of those references too by then the yankees will probably be in last place as usual so <laughs> and then well, let's 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 let, let, let's hope not okay great guys thank you so much thank uh, you thank you very much all right, guys. Thank take, you. Take care. Have a good night. I, I appreciate it. Have a great evening. Good night. Good night. Thanks. I'll tell you what, Benny. We always say, you know, there's so much more to cover. I mean, I one of the questions we had pegged was on his uh, book on on COVID. We'll have to talk about that next time. I mean, such a prolific writer, and like you said, the humanization, the stories, and and of course, obviously, such a an impact that they're coming after him for. Well, maybe that's not the right word. They're they're going to him for questions, and he'll be in part of the interviews for for. And I've I've loved the uh, the biography series Annie's been doing, so I look forward to seeing him talking about the Sheik this weekend. I I mean I wrote down a list of some of the books he he he's written, and um, he wrote one called "Where Are You Going with That Gun in Your Hand?" The true crime blotter of rock and roll. So he wrote a true crime book about rock and roll about all the, you know, the mysterious deaths in the world of rock and roll, which, I mean, that's definitely going to be a very fascinating read. But, he, yeah, it's just, I mean, he's written about it, everything. And, and his, I mean, the Blassie book, which is the one that I've read, it made me want to read the rest of them. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, 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 it's interesting because he talked about, he mentioned Dave Meltzer and how much he's written. But, you know, my opinion on Dave Meltzer, I could, very few things in wrestling I, I respect less than his opinion, but it it shows the quality too. I mean, I would take one one Greenberg article over a hundred Meltzer articles any day. So it's it's not just the and I'm not trying to harp, but it's it's the quality. I everything is is fascinating. Everything is is detailed, and the motivation, the writing. It's it's clearly there's a passion there too. Like. We've talked a lot about movies on the show. You know, you, you watch a movie and you can tell someone is having fun filming the scene. You can read what what Keith's written and just tell that he enjoyed putting the heart and soul he put into the writing. And he with Blassie, though, I mean, he really like I said before, he really made Blassie come to life. Yes. 
I mean, a lot of Blassie's behavior really was very heelish um, in, in real life. But there was a total, you know, there was another side to him. I mean, Keith actually made him, you know, at some points in the book, very vulnerable. And I just really enjoyed that. It was a Fred Blassie that, like I said, I remember filing his teeth and then, uh, you know, biting John Tolos in the head. Yeah. And uh, I, I learned a lot more about Freddie Blassie, the man. Yeah, no, absolutely. Especially, you know, coming from the era, like you said, of, of kayfabe, where Freddie Blassie, you run into Freddie Blassie in the airport, it's the same Freddie Blassie you're seeing in the ring. So, yeah, absolutely. And it's nice to see that story. Well, Benny, this was episode 120. We've been doing this a couple of years now. Uh, who would have thought? So, for the BS Express himself, Benny Scala, I'm Dan Spaschiano. Have a good night, everyone, and we will see you next time we're in the ring. Good night.